The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. John Wargo. He is the Tweedy Ordway Professor of Environmental Health and Politics at Yale University's School of the Environment. He's also the chair of Yale College Environmental Studies major and program. He is the author of two award-winning books, Green Intelligence, Creating Environments that Protect Human Health, and Our Children's Toxic Legacy, How Science and Law Fail to Protect Us from Pesticides. That was published in 1998. Welcome, Dr. Wargo. Well, thank you for having me. I'm curious to know how you became interested in environmental health. Oh, well, you know, I've been in the environmental field for a number of decades, and I uh, first became interested in environmental health when we had our first baby. And I was uh, concerned about especially, you know, how to be protective and how to be preventative so that my children would not be exposed to chemicals that uh, were potentially harmful. That's when a lot of people become interested in the environment. But I'm curious to know why you specifically honed in on pesticides. I've always found pesticides to be unusually interesting. And that's because... First of all, they are known to be toxic substances. They're actually deliberately toxic substances. And for them to be effective, they have to be released to the environment. Now, that creates a serious dilemma. How do you apply pesticides to gain their benefits? At the same time, you protect the environment from having an adverse reaction to them. And then what happens if the residues of pesticides make their way into soil or ground and drinking water, into your food supply, and into your body. And so I became very interested in how you could resolve this problem of gaining the benefits while protecting ourselves and our environment from excessive risks. And I think most of us believe that there is some agency out there, usually with our federal government through our taxpayer dollars that is protecting us. And so you probably, like me, often hear, well, if a product is registered by the EPA, that must ensure safety. Or if the product is sold, that means, too, that it must be safe. But nothing can be farther from the truth. Well, that's a problem that stems from the perception of legitimacy that comes from an agency that has vast regulatory authority and, in fact, has statutory obligation to make sure that the most vulnerable in society are protected against adverse health effects. And that includes young children, but also fetuses. So they do have that responsibility, but there are many, many reasons why the end result is not necessarily health protected. Right. Well, I need to mention your latest report, which is excellent. It's titled Pesticide Risks from Our Farms to Our Homes, 
And you produce this with the Environment and Human Health Incorporated nonprofit organization. And I feel like you have taken the biggest, most important aspects of pesticide use, and you have broken it down into digestible pieces of information, one of which, of course, towards the end has to do with policies and regulations, and we'll get into that. But I think we should probably go back to the beginning and understand a bit more about pesticides themselves and how and where we can find them in our environment. So you talk about, for example, how pesticides get into our food and our water and those that are drifting, those that become systemic in our food supply, those that persist in our environment. The industry rhetoric tells us that these products are safe, they are short-lived, and that we have nothing to worry about. But your report makes it very clear that they are persistent in our environment and in our bodies. So tell me how you designed this report and why you wanted to bring forth the different chapters in this book. Well, I think that there are a number of arguments that demonstrate that government's protection is inadequate. And I'll run through several of those arguments, if that's okay with you. Please. Well, number one, we have a situation where the Environmental Protection Agency relies almost exclusively on data that the manufacturer supplies to them to support EPA's granting of a license. So there is a, a fundamental conflict of interest, and the agency often does not have the quality of expertise that the major chemical companies have that produce pesticides. So the government really has its hands tied behind its back in a way because they don't do their own independent scientific examination. And, you know, one chemical that is very familiar to you know, most people in the United States, it's known as Roundup. And Roundup is an herbicide that has the ability to kill many different kinds of weeds. And EPA never demanded that Monsanto, its original producer, provide data on whether or not the chemical was persistent, uh, whether or not it did produce residues in drinking water or in food. And once it was studied intensively by people that were not associated with the chemical company, the understanding in the scientific journals is very clear. It does persist. It has the ability to move long distances. It's found in the air. It's found in rainwater and attached to snow particles. So failure to recognize persistence basically enables the chemical to be quite mobile. So now we understand that it is not only a residue in many different types of foods, but in people's drinking water supplies. And the intensity of contamination is often tied to the degree of application in agricultural settings. So if you live in an agricultural setting, you know, my warning is test your water for this chemical. It has so many different names. You need to be careful to identify it. It literally has dozens of different technical names. And I call this the industry's name game so that many people, when they read the technical information that may be uh, on the company's website or 
sometimes it's available on packaging material. They may not be able to tie the chemical identity to the trade name, which is Roundup. Right. So there's a fundamental source of consumer misunderstanding that is it's present in many other kinds of consumer products. But this is especially problematic in pesticides. Exactly. I'm glad you brought glyphosate up because what we're also finding is that the residue limits on food have increasingly been raised. So as the industry wants to use more and is using glyphosate, for example, as a desiccant on wheat or some of the dry beans, for example, they have requested that the level of residue be allowed to increase. So we're getting more of it in our food and water. And really, the average consumer has no idea that this is going on behind the scenes. Well, that's true. And Roundup is an unusual chemical in that it has been joined together with foods, different species of of plants that uh, we use for food. And those species have been genetically designed to be resistant to the herbicidal effects of the pesticide. So what this means is that the only plants that would survive in the field that was just sprayed will be the crop. So the herbs or the broadleaf plants that may steal the nutrients away from corn, soybeans, cotton, whatever the the crop is, they are killed. But the plants are able to maximize their nutrient intake. I don't mean to be technical here, but we've known for a very long time that if you apply a toxic substance continually, you will develop resistance among targeted species. And lo and behold, now we understand that in most continents in the world, weeds have become resistant to glyphosate. Exactly. And so now we have stacked traits with resistance to an increasing number of herbicides, including 2,4-D and dicamba. Although the first thing that Monsanto asked EPA to do when they understood this resistance problem was to increase the allowable concentration that was permitted to be applied to fields. And that helped somewhat, but then the the weeds became even more resistant. So then the companies went back to EPA and said, can we also apply other herbicides together? And uh, so here you see the, the escalating pattern of use and concentration of multiple chemicals that creates a different problem, and that is what I call the mixture problem. Mm. What happens to people if they are consuming multiple chemicals that are toxic at the same time? Are the risks somehow additive? If they're both cancer-inducing in in animal studies, does that mean human cancer risk is increasing? And the answer generally is yes. So we're in this cyclone or treadmill where we can't seem to get off it we continue to apply increasing concentrations of pesticides. We increasingly apply mixtures of pesticides to foods. For example, apples, it's not uncommon for apples to have multiple residues on them. And for one type of plant, the maximum that's been detected by the Food and Drug Administration is over 20 different residues found in one sample. So the residues are out there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a really strong argument in favor of the organic industry 
but that has its own problems, which include higher prices. Before we move away from glyphosate and this increasing number of herbicides used, I want to talk about inert ingredients. And you talk about this in your publication on pesticide risks. But this idea that the inert ingredients really aren't inert and that many of them are actually derived from fossil fuel derivatives and they're kind of oily and they make it so that the toxic herbicide, the lead ingredient, is better able to stick to plant leaves and get into the plant cells. Do you want to talk about inerts at all? Sure. I mean, there's so many different formulations of, of glyphosate, as an example. And it could be an inert ingredient that does, as you say, is, is oily, so it will not wash off easily in rain. It could be one that's very water-soluble so that it will leach down into the soil effectively and then be taken up by the plant's roots so that there are a variety of different inert ingredients. And, uh, you know, over the past couple of decades, it's been recognized that many of these inert ingredients that are added to the main toxic pesticide, that they are also toxic. So there's been a lot of additional attention now given to the inert ingredients. The combination just increases the number of chemicals in the mixture that's applied to any one field. So one of my biggest concerns is how do we keep track of these chemical mixtures that we're exposed to that will vary day in and day out depending upon specific plants or animals that eat plants for their own food can convey to the human body. Right. So the EPA is responsible by law to deal with that question, and they have not done a good job. Do you think there's room for suing the EPA over their failure to adequately regulate these products? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, they have a standard that is very strict. It's embedded in the Food Quality Protection Act, and that demands that they set standards with a reasonable certainty of no harm. That phrase, reasonable certainty of no harm, is, is hardwired into the statute. In addition, the administrator of EPA must make a finding, a positive finding, that the chemicals that they are permitting will not be dangerous to children's health. Mm. And you can make an argument quite easily that EPA did not meet that burden of demonstrating safety. So this is a, uh, it's a really important shift in the way that law is structured. Yeah. Normally, the public would have to find danger in order to have a court determined that this, the risk was excessive. So the burden is on the public to do the analyses and collect the data and the science that would demonstrate danger. Now the burden is on the corporation and the agency to demonstrate safety. So that flip of the responsibility is a really important piece of the law, and it creates an opportunity for litigation. Right. But that said, I, I think of litigation as a last resort. It's a policy of last resort for the public because it's so time-consuming. It's very expensive. And these companies uh, such as Monsanto, which is now part of Bayer Chemical, the German parent company, they are enormous. There are now four companies in the world that control about uh, 70% of all of the herbicides that are applied in the world. 
but market concentration gives them an enormous power and you know political ability to get their products licensed. Glyphosate, as an example, the last time I looked, is licensed in more than 150 countries in the world, which means, in turn, that the major grain crops, such as corn and, and wheat and soybeans that dominate U.S. production of grains, they're all treated routinely and often several times a year with Roundup. And so we're in a bind here, and not enough attention has been paid in the U.S. to this. By contrast, the European Union has become very aggressive, and they tend to have more restrictions, particularly when they find the residues entering their ground and drinking water supplies. Mm. Dr. Wargo, let me take one break because we're more than halfway through. I just want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. John Wargo. He is the Tweedy Ordway Professor of Environmental Health and Politics at Yale University School of the Environment. And we are focused on his most recent publication titled Pesticide Risks from Our Farms to Our Homes. And this was produced in conjunction with Environment and Human Health, Inc., well, I want to talk about not only the regulatory piece and where we find these toxins in our environment, but I want to hone in on something that I've experienced in my own neighborhood, and that is the proliferation of lawn chemical services that use many of the same chemical compounds that we see in big agriculture or industrial agriculture, but we find them applied under this guise of Let's have a healthy lawn. And you mentioned in the book how a lot of this consumer literature comes out with these pretty pictures of children playing on green lawns as if it was the healthiest option. And yet your publication makes it quite clear that this is a dangerous practice. I'm sure you live in a very nice neighborhood where people are also receiving mailers giving, say, a 50% reduction in price to have your lawn evaluated. What do you advise your neighbors to do when these industrial chemicals that are marketed under kind lawn treatments, how do you deal with that? How do you talk to your neighbors about it? Well, it's a, a great question. It's a sensitive question, too. But you know, most people don't understand the fact that these chemicals can persist, they can be mobile, they can blow with the wind, they can get on your child's feet. For example, if you have a child, a very young child, a toddler who is crawling on your grass, it could transfer residues to their hands. And young infants commonly have their hands in their mouths, you know, five to ten times per hour, meaning that the hand-to-mouth exposure can be quite significant. The residues can be accumulated on pet fur, and that's not just dangerous for the pet that is licking the fur, but it's also potentially dangerous for the young child that is uh, hugging the, the pet, whether it's a cat or, or a dog. So that these routes of exposure that you need to think about include your water supply, which you're putting at risk if you are applying herbicides like, uh, like Roundup, your dermal uptake because you can absorb pesticides through your skin. In fact, the majority of farm worker poisonings historically have come from skin absorption. And you can also inhale the residues. So 
if you knew that, why in the world would you want to expose your family to the mixture of chemicals? So, you know, the only thing that I've been able to encourage people to do is to consider the environmental benefits of protecting your water, protecting your soil, protecting your children and your own health, at the same time to develop a different aesthetic about what's a healthy lawn. And it's often a lawn that, that does have weeds, that does have moss. In my neighborhood, my lawn does not look like the packages of herbicides and lawn care products you would see in, in most types of hardware stores or, or feed stores. You know, it, it has a high degree of biological diversity. So we've been, we've been given a narrative, you know, what is the ideal lawn? So it, it makes a lot of sense to, to think about that trade-off between your own health and the health of your environment, your, your home, your, your land, and compare it to having uh, a single species of grass that is always green. Right. You know, it's interesting. There are some communities that have come together and decided that they are going to be free of what we call cosmetic use pesticides. And there are some states, however, that prevent any kind of legislation from going through that would enable a community or individual states from passing any kinds of legislation that would ban pesticides. So as someone who works in the field of law, what can consumers do to protect themselves and their neighbors and communities when you have these statewide restrictions? Well, there's a legal principle called preemption. Right. So the federal government can prevent states, for example, in statutes by uh, adopting a federal statute that prevents states from adopting a statute that is more stringent than the federal government. And pesticides are included. Uh, there are preemption provisions. And there are often not preemption provisions, uh, say, from states to local governments, meaning that local governments are are freer often to adopt their own standards. It's not a common thing to see happen, but there is that possibility. So, you know, whenever a bill comes before a state legislature to limit the authority of local governments, people should become vigilant. It's taking you know, power away from people where the chemicals are applied. So I have the same reaction when I see a proposed bill in Congress that would preempt state action. There are many examples, for example, California, which has adopted different approaches. They attacked uh, chlorpyrifos because it's a well-recognized neurotoxin. They required restriction of chlorpyrifos because it violated their air pollution statute. So it's not just a pesticide law that might be applied to control it. It could be a water quality law. It could be a, a drinking water quality law could be a cleanup standard for contaminated landscapes or soil. So there are ways around it, but they need some technical, legal, and scientific advice to be effective. Right. Well, we just have a few minutes left, and I've got your excellent book open to part seven, which is recommendations. I want to give you an opportunity to bring forth anything from this book that you want to make sure our listeners know. And I also want to get your opinion on ways that we can 
be better advocates for ourselves and our environment and thereby our future children's health? Well, the best thing you could do would be to become informed and become very cautious about releasing chemicals in your own environment, especially indoors, but also on your lawns and and your gardens. It's not worth drinking water that's contaminated or having these residues brought into your house. Or, you know, many people are using chemicals indoors. There are some good reasons to do that if if, uh, the health threat from from insects indoors is significant. Everybody's got to reach their own kind of risk versus risk decision. But become informed. Ask questions. Try to figure out how you can get a hold of summaries of the chemicals toxicity that that you're using. Read labels. So the, the other thing that I would encourage people to do would be to have their drinking water tested. Because if your drinking water is contaminated, then that becomes your major source of exposure that will be continual. It will happen every day, every time you take a glass of water from the tap, if you have a well. This would not be the case if you were using municipal water that was being piped in. So just start thinking ecologically and systematically about where these chemicals go and how you might accumulate them. And the easiest and safest thing to do is is just don't use them. Right. Well, they're sold to us as being the quick and easy way to have the kind of lawn that we've been taught in our cultural narratives that this is the way we want our lawns to look. As you mentioned earlier, no biodiversity, monoculture grass. But you're right, we do have to work on a different cultural aesthetic. And I want to commend you for this report, Pesticide Risks from Our Farms to Our Homes. I wish I could put it on every one of my neighbor's porches. I'm hopeful that it will convince people not to use chemicals. Tell me how you're hoping to get this in front of more people. Well, I'm focusing my work and research now on food in the uh, the global food supply. And uh, you know, pesticides are one form of toxin that are quite common, but there are many others. So pharmaceutical residues in food, but also air pollutants that can settle on agricultural lands. So trying to figure out how to reduce the chemical use in the production of our food supply is now uh, my primary priority. I will say that the book uh, you mentioned at the opening of our conversation, Our Children's Toxic Legacy, all of the basic principles that I've been describing quite quickly in this broadcast are contained in that book, and they are still as valid today as they were when, when the book was written several decades ago. So if you're looking for more detail, than you can find in this recent pesticide report. Go back to that book so you will see especially a guide at the end in the last chapter, which is called What You Can Do. How could you change your behavior, your purchasing behavior, in a way that would make sure that your own environment was protected and that you were not placing your family at risk? 
All right. Well, that's great advice. We've got to close because we're out of time, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. John Wargo, Tweedy Ordway Professor of Environmental Health and Politics at Yale University and the author of an excellent guide titled Pesticide Risks from Our Farms to Our Homes. And I will also make sure that we provide a link to Our Children's Toxic Legacy, How Science and Law Fail to Protect Us from Pesticides. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure to join you. 